can I please come back next week? I've had such an amazing time. I promise I won't drop any more tomatoes on the floor. And they said, yeah, come back next week. So I ended up working in the kitchen for free every Saturday for a year and a half while I still had my full-time job at the hedge fund. Wow. And that's where my career in food really began. Hey, 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 everybody. My name's Ryan Atkinson, and you are on this cloud. We have a conversation with Jen Pelka on today's episode. She is the founder of Unfam Wines, which is a world-class women-made champagne and sparkling wines that gives back to women's causes shipped directly to your door. This episode is great as we talk about her, how her early life shaped her as an entrepreneur. Hint, she won in the International Science Fair as a high schooler, how she started a champagne bar in San Francisco and New York, and how she got started with Un Femme. This is a really fun conversation. We talk about the business models that she had, her vision, and how this side hustle really turned into a full-time thing. This is a super fun conversation. And if you enjoy, please give it a five-star rating wherever you get your podcast. And please share it with a friend. It really does mean a lot. So let's dive in. Jen, thank you so, so much for joining us. Super excited to have you on. Thanks so much for having me. I am really excited to talk about your accomplishments. You have done so much in the food industry. So I actually want to start th with this. Imagine it's a Friday night. Two days from now, Friday night, you had a great week, got a lot done, a lot accomplished. You want to treat yourself to a good, good meal. Where are you going and what are you ordering? Well, if it's a Friday, I almost always cook um, mm. as like a form of relaxation. So I love to do like really amazing, not elaborate, but like multi-layered one pot meals. So like I love Ooh. to do like a biryani. Or um, I made bolognese yesterday or a chicken chili verde. Things that like are in my great, amazing Le Creuset pot and <laughs> that kind of the flavors mingle with one another over over many hours and pop open a bottle or multiple bottles of wine with my husband, wow. put on a record, put some candles on and just really chill out. That's my ideal Friday night. But if it's That's Wednesday night... I might go out to a great restaurant in the neighborhood or somewhere in San Francisco. I live in, in San Francisco. Um, and I love to go to wine bars. I love to go to classic American restaurants. Um, mm. Here in San Francisco, we've got a place called the House of Prime Rib, which is amazing. Really, really old school places like that. I love that have a lot of like hundreds of years of history. That's really cool. As the older I get, the more that I've actually taken up cooking as like a form of relaxation of like winding down the day and being like, oh, like I get to cook at the end of the day and like throw on a podcast. So I definitely can relate to that and <laughs> the feeling that you get when it's like, oh, yes, it's time to cook. So I love that. For me, especially at the end of the week, all I want to do is just have have like truly like a project cooking moment that <laughs> allowed me to really unwind. I love it. Right in our kitchen right now, we actually have steaks that are being like dried out so they get. The oh, I love it. That's so cool. That's <laughs> great. But I want to talk about your early, early life because you've started blogs. You've been even a chef. You founded PR firms, restaurants, bars, now Unfem. But take me to your early life. Let's go to say 18 years old. You're now a serial entrepreneur. I mean, did you always have like an entrepreneurial itch even from like a young age or when did that really start to scratch or want to scratch that itch you know i i 
was very, very ambitious in high school and in college. I was very involved in my extracurriculars. I would say mm. more so than my traditional coursework, although I was quite studious as well. Yeah. I grew up in Florida, in Orlando, in a great family, great mom and dad. And my brother was born when I was 12. So I have a much younger brother who actually now is my business partner and my co-founder in in Femme. So when I was 18, I was really focused on getting into college. I really wanted to go to a great school. I was Mm. super lucky and ended up getting into Stanford and went to Stanford as an undergrad. And I spent a huge amount of my time and energy focused on two things. One was debate. So I was Mm -hmm. in the student congress team. And traveled all around the country doing student congress and loved that style of debate and relationship building that comes along with with that particular style of debate. And then I also was very, very involved in science fair. And I worked on um, I worked with a great math professor at Rollins College in Orlando through but through my high school. We had this program where high school students could work with science professors and do scientific research. And I worked with him in a very theoretical area of math and every year competed in the science fair in that area. And I ended up actually wildly winning the international science fair. What? Yeah. That is so sweet. It's pretty wild. It's pretty wild. Yeah. So I proved the existence of a new class of graphs in an area of math called combinatorics, which is, it's like the style of math that they do in the movie Goodwill Hunting. Okay. Okay. Uh, and yeah, I competed all four years of high school at the like at the height at my school level and then the county yeah, yeah. level and then the state level and then the international level. In my junior year, I won the international. Which was that is cool. incredible. Yeah, it was nuts. Yeah, so yeah, you're 18 crazy. years old winning an international award in like science, which I think is that is, that is like stupid incredible. Yeah. So even from 18, you're like, OK, I, like I know what I can accomplish in a way or. I think that I learned that one of my skills is public speaking and like sales almost. Like that's yeah. really what I was doing in science. Yeah. Really what I like, sure, of course I figured out the answers to these math questions or I figured out bills I wanted to present at student congress, but really what I was doing was speaking and then yeah. Uh, presenting to large audiences and doing that in a way that I felt really comfortable doing. And so I've used that as a springboard throughout my career in everything that I've done. And yeah. it's always been a big component of of what I do and what I what I really love to do and what I enjoy doing. And so later in my life, I've done things, a lot of things in sales, a lot of things in PR, a lot of entrepreneurship, where all of those things are really rooted in the ability to like confidently sell people on ideas. Yeah. And so that started when you were 18 and maybe it wasn't like, oh, like I'm going to go start a business when I was 18, but you're starting to build the foundation of being a great entrepreneur at the age of 18. Yeah, and did, I think that's right. did you right. know that at the time? Were you thinking in that I think, realm at no, all? No, I don't. At the time, when I was in high school, I think I wanted to, I was considering going to law school. I, I know my big dream was to be a Supreme Court justice. Cool. Then I also had a, I had a pretty entrepreneurial family. So mm. my dad... And my mom together ended up starting a company selling like hardware, cabinetry hardware um, on the Internet. But my dad previously had been in so many different executive roles at American manufacturing companies. And so I had seen entrepreneurialism all along the way. And my parents also were 
incredibly foundational in like really reinforcing us it for us as kids that we can go out and accomplish whatever we want but we also had food and entertaining around the house at all times and my it goes back a couple generations my dad's father my grandfather was he owned diners and delis in new jersey and then he eventually became the chef of the ocean county new jersey jail whoa so yeah wild and so we always sort of had that restaurant world around us. Um, and then my dad, he almost bought a Dunkin' Donuts chain. He almost <laughs> became a franchisee of a wedding cake business. Like there was always food around. We always had friends over for these big elaborate dinner parties. And so when I moved to college, I hosted dinner parties all the time. And I yeah. guess that's not that typical for a college kid, but that was like, most of my entertaining was less like doing jello shots and more going to Trader Joe's, buying wine and cheese. <laughs> and that was my form That's of gaming with my friends. That's awesome. And yeah. you were at Stanford. So, I mean, you had a family that was like pretty entrepreneurial. Like it sounded like your dad and mom did a lot of great things. And then you also go to Stanford, which is like the heartbeat of America when it comes to entrepreneurship. So in a way, it was like a perfect storm of like a bunch of factors combining together to start your first company. Totally. It was a really, really lucky thing. In fact, when I was graduating, so I ended up studying philosophy of science and history of science. That's so I was exploring things around like the nature of truth and proof and how do we know that gravity is a real thing? And like, is reality a real thing? All of these things. Of course, the only thing that my parents told me I couldn't major in was philosophy because I yep. wouldn't be able to job. And so, of course, I majored in philosophy. <laughs> and when I was graduating, I was trying to decide what I was going to do for jobs. You know, at, um, at so many schools like that, there's so much recruiting on campuses for oh, investment banking and consulting and all of these very traditional style of jobs. And I really wanted to get a small business loan and open a restaurant in San Francisco. And my parents were like, what are you talking about? We just spent all this money on your education. Yeah. No, go to New York, get a real job. So I got a job at a hedge fund and moved out to New York. I was working at the hedge fund in my, you know, 21, 20, 21, 22. And I started falling in love with restaurants and chefs and cooking. And I had learned that you could get what's called a stage, which is basically like, oh, free apprenticeship working in a kitchen and I was incredibly lucky and got one at this amazing restaurant in New York on the Upper East Side called Danielle okay. uh, which is still still around still an extremely important restaurant the chef his name is Danielle Boulou and it's a very traditional French fine dining restaurant and, and the way that I got the job was I had heard you could do these stages I was at my local bar with my best friend we're at the bar we see this guy down the down the bar he's like this you know cute guy and he was reading a book about chefs he got up went to the bathroom came back and I was like oh excuse me are you a chef so we start chit-chatting and turns out he was the sous chef of Danielle and I said oh, can I come stage for you sometime and he said yeah give me a call on the week so I call him he gave me the phone number of the restaurant I called during service and he was like, okay, come in tomorrow, which is come in Saturday, tomorrow, black pants, black shoes, white shirt, bring your knives. I was oh, like, knives? You have knives? I, have any. I was like, I had one knife. It was from Crate and Barrel. It said Crate and Barrel on it. And I, ha I like brought it wrapped in like a kitchen towel with hair 
It's like, I really had no idea what I was doing. I like went out shopping for like a new pair of shoes. Like, and I really should have been shopping for a knife. (laughs) They put me on the lowest, lowest prep roll. And I was um, cutting onions and... Getting paid to do this, by the way, or is this... No, free. This was working for free in a true free apprenticeship. Wow. And they, they, now they have to pay everybody, but... This was, you know, 20 years ago, and this was still a, a tradition that was happening. And it's basically like an educational opportunity. And so I was there in the kitchen and they they handed me this tray of beautiful heirloom tomatoes, which mm. are those like the yellow tomatoes, the purple tomatoes, the green tomatoes. I'd never seen multicolored tomatoes before. And they asked me to peel, <laughs> peeling these tomatoes, which I didn't know you could peel a tomato, but you can. And so I'm peeling these tomatoes and then the... The most senior chef, um, his name is Jean-Francois Bruel. He comes and shakes hands with everybody at the beginning of every service. He comes to shake my hand. And I knocked over the entire tray of peeled tomatoes onto his feet. Oh, no. And it was like the whole kitchen went record scratch. You know, (laughs) like this is a very big deal. This was probably 10 o'clock in the morning. Yeah, yeah. My first day. First day. First day, first moment, first day. Oh, my God. But luckily, uh, somebody had called out sick on one of the very lowest positions on the line, and they let me work the line, basically, like, putting, like, literally, like, putting a piece of herb on something, like, just low impact, you know? But at the end of the night, I said, can I please come back next week? I've had such an amazing time. I promise I won't drop any more tomatoes on the floor. And they said, yeah, come back next week. So I ended up working in the kitchen for free every Saturday for a year and a half while I still had my full-time job at the hedge fund. Wow. And that's where my career in food really began. Yeah, that's incredible. So you worked here just for free on Saturdays. And this is where it starts at. But you mean you hosted dinner parties in college. That was your pregame. And now you're starting to actually get in a kitchen, even though it's, it's just putting a little herb on it. So it was your first adventure really in the food industry. I mean, you worked at like Open Table. You were, I mean, you were a chef as well. But was your first like real entrepreneurial experience with the riddle? And if so, can you tell us a little bit more about how that came to be and how that fruit that came to be? Yeah, absolutely. So the first business I launched was, yeah, I'm trying to think if that is truly the first business I ever launched. I actually launched a couple other businesses that went nowhere now that I'm thinking about it. Like when I was in this, in this period of time, I started working as a personal chef and just started selling my services and got some editorial coverage online. So like that was probably my first business I started that kind of went nowhere after about a year. Then I launched a business that was focused on gourmet goods that were inspired by chefs in gift baskets for the holidays that also went nowhere, but I started that. And I had in my mind the idea of opening a champagne bar. So mm-hmm. I worked at a lot of traditional food and wine companies. So as you said, I worked at Open Table on the restaurant marketing team. I worked at Tumblr, the food network, as a community leader and manager of the food and beverage vertical. I worked at the Gilt Group, the shopping site, um, as the managing editor, so leading all of the editorial content. But the first business that I launched that actually worked was launching the Riddler, which was my champagne bar, the first location of which was in San Francisco. And so riddling is a term in the winemaking world that is a step in champagne making where they 
it's a step after the wines have become, um, it's like sort of in their resting period, they take the wines and turn them a quarter of a turn um, every day for a long period of time. Yeah. So that's called riddling. And so I had tasted a bunch of the Vauclicot champagnes at a wine tasting when I worked at Gilt, where we were doing a bunch of sales of Vauclicot and Dom Perignon. And I'd heard about riddling and I said to my colleague, one day, I want to open a champagne bar called The Riddler. He's like, oh, cool. And then fast forward, I don't know, 10 years later, it actually came true. And so in that time, I would say it was an idea that was in the back of my mind as just something that I thought would be really fun, really exciting. I had mood boards of what I wanted it to look and feel like. I knew that I loved corner locations of restaurants. I knew that I loved a great bar scene. I knew that I loved those classic old school bistros with a lot of wood paneling and dark lighting and loud music and a lot of energy. And there was a location in San Francisco that had been a cafe for many years. And I always had my eye on it. And I was like, that would make an amazing location of the Riddler. That's the spot. That's the spot. And so for years, I just looked at it. And then one day, my husband, um, who's probably my boyfriend at the time, but it's funny. Hmm. It seems like a long time ago. It said, oh, my God, Jen, that space is available. It's on the market. And so I marched on over and was one of the first people to see it. And I put an offer in on it with no funding, no idea of what I was doing, no business plan. And I put an offer in. Luckily, the guy who wanted to sell it was not ready to get rid of it yet. Yeah. So as a timing, as a, in, in terms of timing, I was able to use that time with my, I knew exactly what I wanted to do in this space. I was able to put together a business plan and I was able to go out to investors and bring on a bunch of investment so that by the time this guy was actually ready, I was also kind of ready to take the plunge. So that was the first foray into the wine world. Interesting. Was it, so was it, did it feel different when you put in that when when you put in that bid, it's like, okay, like I really want this space, but like I've done restaurant stuff in the past and like none of them really took off. But like, was there any feeling where it was like, this one's different? Like this is a cafe. This is an idea I've had for 10 years. This is different. Was that in, in your mind at all? Yes. The most significant difference is that the other businesses I had started, I never took on investors and I didn't mm. have a physical place. So it's just a much realer, bigger thing. That's when cool. You know, you've had, like I also in previous businesses didn't really have like expenses that much. It was more like I was working as a consultant. So the expenses were my time. This was like, I need to pay rent. I need to buy champagne inventory. I need to pay a staff. I need to pay for even things like a music system and speakers and yeah. all of the cost of goods for the food, all of those components. And so it did feel much, much, much more real. It was also really, I think, the first business I launched where I did write a business plan. And Mm. I went out and pitched the business to investors to get on board. Interesting. And what was in that like business plan? Because I think that's really interesting. Like this was the first one that had a business plan and it did incredibly well. So like, can you give us a little high overview of like what was actually in that business plan that made it work? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I've seen so many business plans at this point in my in my career 
And <laughs> that one is, when I look back at it, I'm so proud of it because I really did not know what I was doing, which mm. newsflash, no entrepreneurs knows what they're doing. Yeah, uh, no one <laughs> <laughs> been at it for so many years. We were all figuring it out every single day. Um, that's like part of the joy of it is that we really... Yeah. We're, I think entrepreneurs are natural thrill seekers and they Definitely. enjoy the risk. They enjoy the unknown. That's what makes it so mm. much fun. And that's what makes it so rewarding. The foundation of that particular business plan was really around the look and feel of the plan of what I wanted the space to, what I wanted the vibe to be when you walked in. And then of course, components like what is the menu? What is the pricing? Yep. Um, what is the layout? How many customers can I have in a single shift? There are components to a business plan that really have to do with the fundamentals of the business model. So mm. how much revenue do we think we're going to bring in in the year and how do we get to that revenue? So yes. the way that I started it was like in a given night of service, how many guests do we think we'll have? Okay, I figured that out by how many tables we had and how many times I thought I could turn them. And then from there, what do I think the average order is going to look like? What are the average tips, et cetera, et cetera. So that's how you get to your revenue number for a night. And then you say, okay, well, a Friday night and a Saturday night are going to be much busier than a Monday yeah. night. And Saturday and Sunday are, are also have brunch. So you have those components, different day parts, and then you figure out what your annual revenue looks like. And then from there, you can extrapolate out what your costs are going to be. So those mm. costs, of course, are like cost of goods. So the cost of the food, the cost of the wine, but then also some components like staffing costs, um, occupancy, which is your rent, um, things like the gas bill, the water bill, taxes, yeah. all of those. Components. So that part of the business plan is really essential and is, I think, foundational when you're putting together your idea for what your business is, because that's where you figure out how you create a profitable business so that it can live on in the long term. That's interesting. And what I really like that what like you focused on is like the visual aspect, because I want your take on this. I feel like a restaurant, like people go to a restaurant because like, oh, the experience, the food's good. Yeah, but the experience is awesome. Like I love the ambiance of it. I love the music. I love how the decorations are. I mean, how important is that like in a restaurant? And I mean, it sounds like you put a lot of thought into that. Oh, it's hugely important. I mean, don't we all love to go to places that have a great yeah. vibe that look cool, especially now when everybody's like all over Instagram and TikTok. We did a lot of components of the design that were very like branded and really fun that allowed us to be kind of all over social. So for example, we had a mural on the outside that was of a big champagne bottle. And so people That's would stand underneath it, like pretending to drink a champagne bottle. That was when our tables were very recognizable. There were these beautiful Parisian cafe tables that say the Riddler and hello, old friend. So people would take pictures of those and they were on white. So it was like good for a flat lay. We had a big sign on the top that literally said champagne bar. Like that's sweet. So you're walking by. What is that place? Oh, it must be a champagne bar. So those I but iconic visual moments are. I think if you do them right, can be really helpful for the long term of your brand recognition. Yeah. I love that. And the Loretta was wildly successful. Um, you did great things with that. Then you pivoted it to Unfam, excuse me, in the December of 2020. How did you know it was time to start this? I mean, you did great things with the riddle. I mean, but how did you know it was time to move on and do something else? Yeah. So Unfam really started as our house wine at the bars. Mm -hmm. um, 
all of our investors in both locations of the Riddler. So we had one in San Francisco and then we opened a second in New York in the West Village. And all of our investors were women. And that was kind of by design. Um, It was definitely my network and it was a community of people who I wanted to galvanize together because it went from, hey, do you want to invest in a champagne bar to, hey, do you want to invest in a champagne bar? All of the other investors are women and Mm. we're going to do things that get those women together. And this is like part of a movement. And that was something that was, it was an easier sell. And it was also incredibly impactful to the business overall. So because we had that community of our investors, that also became part of our social media and our storytelling and all of our press coverage. And then it also was like, our chef was a woman, our beverage director was a woman, our director of operations was a woman, our business manager was a woman. This was like girl power kind of place. Hell yeah. And all So, so many of our guests were women getting together with other women to drink wine, have a great time. And we would feature women-made wines on the wine list. And oftentimes, those would be our best-selling wines. And guests would ask us, where can I find wines made by a woman winemaker? I don't know how to shop for one. I don't, I don't know which brands are made by women. I want to support women. This is important to me. And I was like, why is there not a brand for this? So we launched Une Femme as our house champagne. A lot of restaurants have a, a house pour. And we worked with an amazing champagne producer in France who we met because she was a big fan of the Riddler. And yes, yeah, super cool. And so we had just met her at the bars a bunch of times. And so she essentially did like a white label for us. So this was actually an example of a project that was like a side hustle that I did not write a business plan for. I did not think was going to turn into a massive business, but was kind of a happy accident. And so we launched these. We got some great press for it right out of the gate. And then, unfortunately, we were in the midst of, we, we launched in January of 2020. And then by March 2020, all of the restaurants across the country were shut down oh, because yeah. of COVID. And I was living in California, managing a team in New York in the heart of COVID, in the city that was hit most significantly. Yeah by COVID. Um, and our team did not want to come back to work. And it was so, and I didn't want to ask them to. And it was just a really scary time for everybody living in New York, especially. And so we pushed and we pushed and we tried to figure out how to make it work. But we ended up making the very hard business decision to close both locations, the mm. San Francisco location and the New York location permanently. Really? And that took months and months and months of winding everything down, of handling investor relationships. No one goes to start a business with any sort of an intention of ever closing it down. It's a really, really hard thing to do. And you feel very guilty because a lot of people have lost their jobs. And Mm -hmm. and also you're just so emotionally attached to these cool businesses you started. So that was really tough. But out of that, Unfem existed as a brand. We were not particularly focused on it during that period because we were so focused on closing down the Riddler. But then as the year progressed and as the next year began, I was, my brother had been our like CFO at the Riddlers. Yeah. And I was like, do you think we could make this a real thing? <laughs> like, can we make this a real business? And so we started, we, we like completely refocused, spent all of our time on this business. And I'm so grateful that we did because now it's a really big, really successful company. 
And we are, it's not without its challenges, of course, yeah. but it has now grown into an opportunity much larger than we anticipated. And it's been a pretty exciting road in the two and a half years since then. Yeah. What I love about that is like, yeah, like the Riddler's closing and like it, it, it it's a disappointing time because as you said, no one gets in a business be like, oh, I can't wait to close this thing down. Like no one does that. You grow an emotional connection to that. It's basically like your own baby. But you guys really took like the negative and turned that into a huge positive to develop this brand that was recognized even before like you had to close. And so you had that community. Um, you had that community of wine lovers, women wine lovers before even the Riddler closed to really help launch this thing and get it going. That's exactly right. We had a great community. We had a very cool, cool, cool amount of like, yeah, so community of supporters who yeah. loved, who loved and missed the Riddler and wanted to get access to the wines. Now there are tons of people who drink the wines who've never heard of the Riddler, who've never yeah, been yeah. there, but it was a really great starting point. Yeah. And one point that you're at right now um, is like you're partnered with Delta, like Delta Airlines. That is my favorite airline. So I was super happy when I saw that. Um, <laughs> Delta is the best. Yes. Can you take me like through how that partnership like started? Yeah. So we are incredibly fortunate to get to work with Delta Airlines, truly the best airline in the world and is often recognized. Favorite airline. Yes, totally, totally, totally. So we're really lucky. I think this is a good story of like manufactured luck and also really hard work. Ooh. So the way that I connected with the Delta team is that my husband is a restaurant owner in San Francisco. He owns the restaurant group Suvla. They have, um, they're now opening their sixth location of this really cool fast casual Greek concept. And the Delta team had been looking for restaurant partners in the San Francisco Bay Area who could service their first class cabins, which mm. are called Delta One, which is the most premium cabins after they'd come back from COVID and wanted to do a lot of cool surprise and delight things for their customers. So I help my husband sometimes with PR and partnerships and things like that. And so the Delta team had been out to San Francisco to meet with potential restaurant partners. And I was involved in a couple of those days. And one of those days, um, my husband said, do you want to show them your wines? And I was like, I would love to show them my wines. Yeah. And um, they loved the story and got really excited about it. And we ended up doing a one month partnership with them of our sparkling rosé in our mini bottles. So mm. they're, they're like individual single serving bottles. And they featured them on planes across the U.S. for their breast cancer research fund month. Oh, that's cool. So, so cool. All of our wines are made by women winemakers and they give back to charities that benefit women. So for that particular wine, we partnered with the Breast Cancer Research Fund. And that project was a hit. It was a lot of fun. It was big success. And, and then we worked with the team to develop a sparkling white wine in cans. Um, and we started with a portion of the fleet and then we went to the whole fleet and then they picked us up in the lounges. And now uh, we just started working with them on all of the international flights. So we are actually now the sparkling wine on board all Delta planes in the world. Which is so wild. So, so, so wild. So it's a huge honor and we love working with them. We're so grateful for the partnership. And I couldn't think of a, a better opportunity or way for us to connect with so many customers. Because we serve literally millions of these in the air and oh, they're yeah. in the cans 
And we have a QR code on the back of the cans. And the cans say, you know, made by women winemakers, giving back to charities, the benefit women. And we get a, a lot of traffic to our website through that QR code on those cans. So we serve wine. We make wines and sell wines that are, of course, in cans for Delta and that are great for like picnics and concerts and things like that. But mm -hmm. we also do make true champagne and we make sparkling wines that are really high quality in California as well. So we've got a nice range of wines that are available at this point. Yeah, I feel like that Delta partnership is like perfect too because like I feel like that hits like a really, like I feel like a people that like to travel a lot also like to drink wine a lot. So that has to be like a perfect like partnership where it's like, oh, scan this QR code and come to our website. And it's cool that, of course, you have the thoughtfulness to track that. Is there any, is there like, what's on the roadmap for distribution? You guys have the Delta partnership, but is there any other like partnerships where it's like, we could get that like, holy smokes, this is a new ball game. Totally. We've got a bunch of amazing national partners who we love. One of them is Marriott. So we are partnered with their luxury tier hotels. So if you're ever staying at a Ritz-Carlton, you can drink Unfem at any Ritz-Carlton in the U.S. That's sweet. Uh, super cool. We're also at every St. Regis, every JW Marriott and every autograph collection hotel. So we love Marriott. They've been an amazing, amazing partner. They're the best hotel group in the in the world biggest and largest and best and they're amazing operators and we have a great relationship with their team so we we love that partner we're incredibly excited we're going to be launching at target nationwide in march so yeah that'll be right when this episode comes out <laughs> that's right that's great yeah we'll be launching just in time for women's month and we'll be in about 350 target stores in 33 states so watch out for us at Target. That's going to be a huge, huge thing. You know, the number one question people ask us is where can I buy these wines close yeah. to me? And so we right right now this year, we're really focused on big partnerships, whether it is big national chains where we know that people love to shop and also lots of amazing independents. So our, we'll be at, we will be at Sprouts Markets as well, starting in March, which they're a big chain on the West Coast, like really, really great gourmet grocer and tons of independence. So I'll send you a list of where we are in Austin if you want to go shop. And there's always a section on our website that says where we're currently available. But this year is going to be a big year of expanding our distribution all across the U.S. And we're really grateful that we now have national distribution through a group of distributors in the wine world called RNDC, which is like one of the bigger national distributors. So big, a big, it'll, this year is going to be a big year of growth for us. Yes. And I want to congratulate you on like everything you have done. It, it is like truly incredible just from like your early life of winning the international science fair to tar <laughs> uh, partnering with Delta to partnering with Target. So last question for you. I mean, you look back on like the growth of like your own career. Is there one specific time in your career that you felt like you accelerated your own personal growth the most? You know, each year there's, it's like constant forward momentum. And I actually think like what I've been doing most in the last couple of years has been actually like slowing down and saying no mm. a little bit, but in a way that propels me forward. It's like very intentional. But I think the most formative years for me were those years in my early 20s like truly like 21 to 25 when I was in New York and working at Danielle. Yeah. I was, you know, grinding it out in the office at the hedge fund and then at Danielle on the weekends. And the reason why it was such a special time was 
you know, I was in New York. There's so much energy. When you're in your 20s, you've got so much energy. And nobody, you know, none of my friends yet had kids or were married. Everybody's pretty free to explore all of their interests and has a lot of time available to explore essentially their extracurriculars, right? Like the things that make them really excited and like taking big swings and big risks is pretty easy. You can handle it. You can handle the the challenges at that time. And I learned so much at Danielle because Danielle himself is such an incredibly creative and collaborative, yeah. positive person that I have tried to to follow that spirit in my career. And he's he's somebody who really lives the lifestyle of believing that the rising tide lifts all boats. Like he's not That's sure true. he's competitive with himself, but he loves to see other people around him on his team and his peers also succeed. And he, I, I just learned by being in such close proximity to him that saying yes to big ideas is a way to like really propel yourself forward. Um, and so I, I try to continue to channel wherever I can. And I think that collaborative work is something that, you know, so often one plus one equals way more than two. And awesome. you can get so much more done in partnership with other like-minded people who might think a little bit differently than you or might have a different audience than you do, um, but where you share a lot of the same values and things that you care about, things that are fun and things that are creatively interesting. I love that. I love that. Well, Jen, thank you so, so much for joining us. This was a great episode. I'm super excited that we got you on. I'm super excited to cheer you guys on. You guys have such a great year of growth ahead of you. I'm excited when this episode comes out. I'm going straight to Target because it'll be March. And I'm grabbing myself a bottle. So Jen, thank you so much for joining the podcast. You were great. And thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you.